Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Uh, I'm wearing my stuntman shirt today because I'm going to wrap up the stuntman versus stunted man series. For the last several weeks, we've been learning about godly character and how it is that we can put it in place in our lives. The Bible offers us great hope. First, it offers us the hope that we can be forgiven of all of the things that we've ever done wrong. The Bible calls those things sins. But secondly, it offers us the hope that we can be changed. In fact, the Bible holds out more than hope. It makes a promise that God will transform from the inside out absolutely anyone who wants him to do so. And because Hollywood stuntmen are the kind of people who step up to challenges instead of shrinking back, who face difficulties with courage instead of fear, who go big when others go home. I kind of like to think of the people who purposely build godly character as stuntmen and stunt women in this faith of ours. Stunted people are those who choose weakness, fear, excuses, and lives of spiritual mediocrity. Listen, if, if those four things characterize your life, weakness, fear, excuses, and spiritual mediocrity, you need to know something and face this fact. You've chosen it. Because what is available to you is faith and the ability to become that stuntman, stuntwoman kind of believer. Chapter 11 of the Bible's New Testament book, titled Hebrews, is sort of a faith stuntman hall of fame, and we've been learning about godly character from the people that are listed in that chapter. The list starts with a guy named Abel, who was Adam and Eve's son. The Bible teaches that Adam and Eve violated our world, and in the process, they violated our inner lives, the inner lives of the whole human race, by disobeying God. You know, when you use anything for something other than its intended purpose, uh, it often gets ruined. That's I've told this story before. I had this friend that I worked with back when I was in seminary. For the first couple years in seminary, I was a mechanic. And there were two of us, exactly two of us in the shop that carried pocket knives. If you're a mechanic, you just need one. But only two of us would carry pocket knives. And so the rest of the guys in the shop from time to time would need one, and they would come to borrow knives. And my friend Ray had this knife that he loved. And so anytime anyone asked to borrow his knife, he would take it out of his pocket, and he would reach toward them, and as it was about to hit their hand, he'd pull it back, and he would say, repeat after me. This is not a screwdriver. This is not a pry bar. This is not a hammer. It is a pocket knife. And they would say those things, and then he would put it in their hands and let them do what they needed to do. And the reason that Ray always had them do that is because he'd loaned out his knife a number of other times when it was used as a screwdriver, a pry bar, or a hammer, and he ended up having to get a new knife. You see, when you use things for something other than which they were intended, it often causes damage and sometimes ruins them. And the truth is that when human beings used our will to rebel against God. That's not what we were made for. And it caused a deep and lasting damage to all of us, ruined us from the inside out. When our first parents decided to live in defiance of God, it wrecked our inner world. Thanks a lot, Adam and Eve, right? Well, all of us have seconded the motion, so I guess, you know, we're in in the same boat with them. Abel, however, one of their sons, 
somehow learned to connect with God in ways that were pleasing to God. And so what we haven't read about him since the the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, he shows up here late in the Bible in the book of Hebrews as this example that is pleasing to God, a, a man whose example we should follow. Hebrews then mentions a guy named Enoch. We don't know much about him, only that he too really connected very deeply with God. And so much so, the Genesis puts it this way, Enoch walked with God and he was no more. We don't know what happened to him, but but it, it seems that God just got along so well with Enoch and, and Enoch so well with God that the two of them forged this fantastic friendship that his life didn't end the way anybody else's did. He just was gone one day. Nobody ever found a corpse. It was before the days of organized crime syndicates, so he's not buried under giant stadium, I promise you. Scripture seemed to indicate that God said, death is not for Enoch. He's coming with me. And he was taken to heaven. Hmm. The second part, the mystery, honestly, I don't care much about that. But I'm really intrigued by that first part. I want to live my life in such a way that if my life had to be summed up in a single phrase, people would say, that guy walked with God. We know exactly what became of him. The next Hall of Famer is a guy named Noah. He lived at a time in which humanity seemed so far gone that the the writer of Genesis says that the thoughts of every single human being on the planet were only evil all of the time. Except a guy named Noah. And Noah was a man who also somehow found a deep personal connection with God. He and God connected in a healthy, holy relationship so that he could say, I believe in and love my God. And God gave grace to this man for all of his imperfections. The list continues with the great patriarchs and leaders of ancient Israel. If you know the Bible's story, you'll recognize these names. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Moses, Moses, arguably the best leader in all of human history. And then in a strange turn of events, the next Hall of Famer that's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 is a prostitute by the name of Rahab who showed us that when a person finally commits his or her life to God, they receive a whole new identity and their lives are transformed from the inside out. Rahab was transformed from a hooker into an honorable woman who was a direct ancestor of kings and of Jesus himself. Don't you love how hopeful that is? That I too can be changed and used for the glory of God. Now listen to what Hebrews says next. I'll read it. It's from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 and following. I'd like for us to stand together, please, in honor of the reading of God's word and in honor of the people that the passage is trying to honor. Lord Jesus, breaker of chains, We stand here in your presence, waiting for the light to shine on us. Thank you for these examples. Help us not only to understand how they lived, but to follow their example. May your Holy Spirit, who inspired writers of Scripture, now inspire the readers of Scripture. Let us get it inspire us, enable us, strengthen us. 
live what we learn. We pray in your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 32, the writer says, And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, who quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Listen to this. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. But now listen to this. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. I'm not sure I really know what that means. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. All these were commended for their faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Did you get that? The, the list went on and on and on. And then at some point, the writer says, I can't even mention all the names, but here's the kind of people that I'm talking about. And he draws an amazing picture of what human beings are capable of when they have a healthy, holy relationship with the God of this universe. What made these people this way? How did they become heroes and the stuff of legends? What was it that they all had in common that spelled the difference between them and everybody else? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us that the answer to those questions is two things, and they're both found in verse 6. It says first that these people believed there's a God, but not just any God. Specifically, they believed in the God who we usually just refer to as God, as though that were his name. The Bible's first chapters say that he is the God who created the universe and he's the same God who created life within it and who had a relationship with some of the people that I've already mentioned to you this morning. The second book of the Bible says that he had an especially close relationship with a man named Moses. So one day, Moses and God are having a conversation and Moses asks the God to tell him his name. In Hebrew, Moses' language, the name sounds something like Yahweh. A word that means, I'm the God who is. Or I'm the God who always has been and is now and always will be. Maybe it translates best into our language as, I'm the living God. Not some lifeless statue or idol like your neighbors have. The stuntmen of Hebrews 11 believed in this God. Then Hebrews 11.6 tells us that they believed a certain something about this God. It says that they believed that a person can connect with God if they genuinely want to, and that it will be a rewarding experience. Let me say that again. The people that believed in this God, mentioned in Hebrews chapter 6, 
also believe something certain about this God. They believed that a person, any person, can connect with the God if they deeply want to. And when they do so, they will find it to be a rewarding experience. God himself will make sure that that is the case. So what made these people different than their neighbors? What turned them into the people whose stories have been preserved and retold for thousands and thousands of years in an ancient collection of stories? What was it that transformed their existence? It was those two things. It was belief in this God and belief that if you connect with him in a deeply rewarding relationship, it'll change your life from the inside out. And the Bible puts those two things together and calls them faith. It was the faith of these people made them who they are. It was faith that moved them to take the actions that became the stuff of legends, the things that dramatically impacted the world around them. They and their actions, Hebrews 11.6 also tells us, get this, pleased God. These people and what they did ended up being pleasing to God. Feel the power of that idea for just a moment. A person, any person, a person like you, can please the God of this universe. Instead of worrying if he's mad at you, instead of hoping that he'll just, you know, give you a little bit of slack. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, says it's possible for a man, a woman, a teen, or a child to be pleasing to God. And when God looks at you, there's a smile on his face, and it's your fault. You like that idea? That the God of heaven and earth looks at you, and when he does, when he thinks of you, there's a smile on his face, and it's your fault. How in the world can that take place? How can a guy like me become somebody who makes God smile? Faith. That's how. Believe that God exists and that he's exactly who he claims to be and who he's revealed himself to be in the pages of the Bible. And the Bible itself testifies that that constitutes faith and brings the smile to the face of God when he thinks of you. Some of you may be thinking, come on, Cliff, can it really be that simple? I mean, isn't there some extra religious stuff that you have to do as well? I want to show you that I'm not making this up and I'm not stripping the message down and I'm not dumbing it down or watering it down. This is what the scriptures proclaim. Take a look at the screen behind me. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this, and without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Let me read it one more time. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because Anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, I know that that verse starts out stating something sort of negatively that probably runs a little bit of fear across our radar screens. But this morning, don't let that trip you up. Instead, take a look at what the verse is trying to say. It's saying that faith pleases God. And then, in case you don't know what faith is, it gives you a working definition. People connect with God by believing that he exists, and that if they try to connect with him, he'll do it, and he'll make it a rewarding thing. I know that there are guests with us this morning, and I want you to know I'm really glad that you're here today. 
also know that there are people who go to church for years on end and who struggle with the idea that God might be either mad at them or disappointed with them, that he couldn't possibly want to have a close-knit relationship with a person like them because he knows the hearts of people and what we're truly like. I know that there are people who wonder whether there really is a God at all, let alone the God of the Bible that exists as the one true living God. I know people struggle with those things. If you struggle with any of those things, I want you to know how glad we are that you would uh, come and do religious things with us and, and, and worship and, and listen to this thing that I'm saying this morning. If you think enough of us to come along with us, well, that pleases us today. And we want you to know that you're welcome. And we'd love it if you would check out this God of ours. I want to ask you a question this morning. If there really is a God, wouldn't you want him to be pleased with you? I mean, if there's a God, how do you want him to feel when he thinks about you? You'd want him to be pleased with you, right? Well, the Bible says that that can be the case. Whatever else the Bible is about, whatever else the Christian faith and Christian religion might be about, I want you to know that in their essence, both of those things, the Bible and the Christian church, are really just trying to help people to understand that you can please the God of heaven and earth. No matter what you've done in the past, no matter how your conscience and your family accuse you, no matter what you've been told about God hating sinners or being mad and him being impossible to please, the Bible and the Christian church together really have just one message, and it's this. You can be pleasing in God's sight, and you might be surprised how easy it is. But let me make a couple of things clear. You can please God, but not by becoming a morally better person. Refraining from Doing naughty things doesn't impress God, and it doesn't convince him uh, to connect with you. You can please God, but not by becoming extra religious. And by that, I mean doing formal stuff that looks spiritual, but your heart isn't really in it. Simply becoming religious is nothing more than trying to schmooze God. And you heard it here first. God can't be schmoozed. Okay, write that down. It's important. God can't be schmoozed. You can't impress God by becoming a do-gooder either. You can serve a whole bunch of meals over at the Rock, and you know what? It doesn't change God's opinion of you. One thing, one thing alone pleases God. That one thing is faith. Believing that he is and that he always, every time, rewards anyone who genuinely seeks And why doesn't the Bible just say that, Cliff? Well, it does. The problem is uh, it's, it's written in, as, as ancient literature, and it says things in ancient ways. It's also foreign literature, so it says it in ways that its original audience would understand. But all of its stories and teachings together tell us that God reached out to humanity in many, many ways down through the ages and finally did so in one definitive way. It was by sending his son Jesus as his messenger. And Jesus came to show us a couple of things. First, he came to show us just exactly what it looks like when anyone decides to actually believe in or trust God. And secondly, he came to restore justice 
to this world of ours. You've noticed, haven't you, that the world around us is unjust? Does anybody think life is fair? A little reality therapy for you. We'll meet right over there in the fellowship after fellowship hall afterwards. I'll explain it all to you. This world is a rough place. It's broken. It does not work like it is supposed to. And while Jesus came to show us what it looks like when somebody trusts God and then leaves that out, he also came to begin to restore justice to this world of ours. And he restored justice in this way. He lived blamelessly, then accepted punishment so that all of the people who were not blameless could go free. Wait a minute. That sounds unjust. Yeah, it's unjust if we capture somebody and sacrifice them unwillingly so, so that the guilty can go free. But it is the perfect maturity of justice when somebody who lives faultlessly says, I choose to take the place of those who ought to be punished. And when Jesus lived as he did and died upon the cross, he accepted the punishment for all the wrongdoing of the human race upon himself. With the holy God no longer obligated to punish wrongdoing, it leaves both God and us in a place where we can, well, have a healthy, holy, lasting, sacred relationship with one another. And all that it takes for a person to gain those benefits is faith. Decide today to put your faith in these things. Can, the decision is yours. In other words, what I'm saying is, bet that these things are true. Bet what? Your life. Decide to live your life from this point forward on the assumption that these things are true, and the Bible says God will be pleased with you. It doesn't say you have to feel that they are true. It doesn't say that you can't ever question those things. It just says, bet your life on them. And God himself will be pleased with you. Decide to live your life from this point forward on the assumption that these things are true. And the Bible says God will be pleased with you. It says that the results of pleasing God are absolutely incredible. Hebrews eleven six says he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Man, feel the power of that today. That should get you excited. God gets really creative when it comes to rewarding people because he knows your heart and he knows what will thrill it. And he works to reward those who believe in him and seek him. Among those rewards is a moment-by-moment, real-time kind of relationship where you get to have God with you as you experience the good stuff, the bad stuff, and the in-between stuff of life. That brings peace particularly in some situations that used to just tear you up. This relationship, the Bible furthermore says, lasts literally forever. Jesus himself tried to make that message as plain as possible. So he explained it this way to a guy who was trying to get God to like him by doing religious things. Jesus said, God loved the world so much that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I have a question for you this morning. Will you bet your life that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him? 
If so, then I would like to introduce you to the person that you are willing to bet your life upon. You can stay seated right where you are. I'll ask the worship team to join me up here. But if you're a person who today says, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to bet my life that God exists. I'm going to bet my life that he's the kind of God the Bible says he is. I'm going to bet my life that he actually connects with people who want to connect with him. I'm going to bet my life that he rewards people who try to connect with him. We want you to do this. Let's just all just bow our heads, close our eyes. And I'm going to pray a real simple prayer, and you can just kind of repeat it after me. You don't have to do it out loud. You can if you want. Uh, the people seating, seated next to you, they'll think that's awesome. But if you want to bet your life on the God today, pray this prayer with me. God, I believe in you. I'm speaking to you because I believe you exist. Honestly, I've had plenty of questions about you. I've not always understood the things that you've done or the things that you've allowed to happen in my life. Admittedly, there are things I don't get about you. But I learned today and I'm willing to bet my future on this one thing. That you really do want to connect with people in a deeply rewarding way. I want to connect with you. I want my life to be different. I want to know what kind of creative rewards you might have for me. And I want that peace that Cliff was talking about this morning. So I'm reaching out to you. I'm going to accept what you did on my behalf, Jesus. Thank you for being punished for my sins. That I can go free. That I'm free to start this relationship with God. Please come and connect with me. Live in my heart. And I'm going to need you to hold my hand a little bit too, God, and walk me through some hard stuff, the good stuff, and the in-between stuff. But I'm reaching out to you today. Praying in Jesus' name. Amen.